Welcome to Social Distance Assistance. I'm Kelly. And I'm June. Today, our episode is about helpers at protests during the pandemic. In light of the killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and on June 12th, Rayshard Brooks. We're going to talk about how to stay as safe as possible from coronavirus while protesting, and a bunch of ways people are trying to help keep one another safe. Do I show up in the streets with thousands of others? Against the advice of doctors who say not to gather in public? And put my health at risk to express solidarity? It's not an easy choice to make. There's a moral calculation happening here. You see vulnerable people, they tell you the ways that they need you to support them, and then you take on personal costs to make that happen. Maybe you're young and white and in good health like me. In that case, protesting means you're showing up for black lives. It also might mean that you need to be quarantined for 14 days afterwards. A pretty small price to pay. Maybe you're older or immunocompromised, or you're the sole caregiver for someone else who fits those bills, or you're part of a community that's more at risk of police violence and there's a higher possibility you'll be arrested for protesting. In that case, going to a protest during a pandemic might be too costly. It's a time of tragedy, but also a time of possibility. We're seeing all kinds of things we didn't expect to see. People rallying in support of black lives who wouldn't have done it six months ago. Or protesters all over the globe saying Breonna Taylor's name. The cops who shot and killed her still haven't been arrested, by the way. But the protests are making a difference. Confederate and colonial monuments are coming down. Minneapolis has pledged to defund its police force. Here at home, police officers will no longer be stationed in Charlottesville City Schools, a practice that's been embraced for years across the country, but that's also led to unnecessary policing and violence against children of color. So on today's show, we're talking about protesting during a pandemic. We'll hear about a car caravan protest in California. We'll meet a rapper without any medical training who assembled an emergency medic team during protests in Minneapolis. And we'll give you a list of things you can do to protect yourself from COVID before, during, and after protesting. Stay with us. We're recording this on the 17th day of ongoing protests in response to George Floyd's murder and police violence. We've been to a few protests in Charlottesville, mostly marches. And we went to a black youth organized rally slash block party to defund the police last weekend that was just so full of joy. I'm only eight, but I'm a protester. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. We marched in the streets to defend black lives in 2017 and 2018 after white supremacists rallied in Charlottesville. But one thing that's been different about recent protests is how many people are protesting in their cars. That has been a little weird for me. 
Back in 2017, Heather Heyer was killed by a car here in Charlottesville while she was protesting against the Unite the Right rally. The idea that cars would now be circling the same blocks almost three years later in defense of protesters took a little getting used to. But cars have been super helpful for protesting during a pandemic, as vehicles for showing up, making noise, and staying at a safe distance. Freelance journalist Sonia Paul went to a car caravan protest in Oakland, California, and discovered that it also allows more people to participate than ever before. As with many local events these days, I saw it first on Facebook. Justice for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor car caravan. It was slated for the last Sunday of May, the end of that first long weekend of protests that woke the nation up yet again to the fight for Black lives. We really want the car caravans to be a place where, you know, immunocompromised people can go, people with different abilities can go and demonstrate to the state that they're not going to use this pandemic of COVID-19 to stop us protesting the pandemic of police terror. That's Kat Brooks. She's the co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project. It's an Oakland-based organization that's worked for years with communities and families who've suffered at the hands of the police. And it's the driving force behind several protests in the Bay Area now, including this car caravan, a kind of protest they've done before and which fits our current moment. It's amazing. And people honk their horns and they post signs. So there were definitely pandemic concerns that generated the idea of like, okay, how do we keep resisting and not die, basically, and not expose our community, right? Because black and brown people are the ones that are catching and dying from COVID-19 at higher rates than any other demographic. And those are the people that come. And so if we're talking about preserving black life, we want to be sure that we were engaging in ways that preserves black life. That afternoon, I grabbed my polka dotted bag I used to carry my audio equipment, double checked to make sure I had my face mask, and drove to its meeting point at the Port of Oakland. We have a communications team, we have a logistics teams, we have security teams, we've got organizing teams, comms teams. I think because this wasn't the first one, thank goodness, because it was the biggest one that we've seen, we were able to move through it pretty quickly. To the helicopters flying overhead, the cars stacking up behind each other must have looked like ants. Signs decorated their doors and windows. Black Lives Matter. George Floyd deserved a life, not a hashtag. Respect existence or expect resistance. Cyclists with signs on their backs also sped by. While everyone was still gathering, I decided to walk down the road to survey the scene. A woman leaning against her car was doing the same thing. I'm going to drive in the caravan. I I just, I want to kind of soak it in here. That's Susan. She was nervous about the crowds at the other protests, she said. So the idea of staying in a car was enticing. It was the only thing that I saw that I knew I could do. Um, I'm a trans woman. I'm here also to support black trans women. You know, unfortunately, you know, I'm always aware of black trans women being killed. So that's why I'm really here. I don't know what's going to happen, to be honest. Sansan and her two teenage sons were sitting patiently in their car, peering their heads out the windows. We're just kind of waiting and assuming that um, <laughs> that somebody will initiate some movement. But I'm guessing that this is probably bigger maybe than they imagined it might be. Sansan told me she's no stranger to protests, but she was specifically excited for this protest because it seemed family-friendly, as she put it, 
and respectful of social distancing. For me and for my family, it's really important as Asian Americans that we be part of this movement and that it be recognized that Asian Americans are equally committed to racial justice. I think this moment is a culmination of a lot of things. I think it's a culmination of, you know, almost four years of 45 in the White House and what that's meant for Black, Brown, queer, Indigenous bodies, for our climate, for jobs, for all of those things. Across this country, people are being displaced. People can't afford their rent. This was before. And then the pandemic hit, and then people lost their jobs, and then people were terrified. So when Minneapolis caught fire, the country exploded. And I think you're seeing people from all of those fights in this particular fight right now and that people are doing a really good job of being intersectional around what we're talking about. And it's not lost on people that Black people are at the bottom of all those issues that I just listed, right? Looking around at the people hanging out of their cars, it was true. The protests had attracted all kinds of people. I'm Faye Rohrbach and I'm from Oakland, California. Susan Schulman, I'm from Oakland, California. Did you go to any of the other protests or marches in Oakland earlier this weekend? We didn't because we're trying to practice the social distancing because we're over 65. So the fact that it's in a car is ideal for us. Yeah, and speaking of your age, I mean, have you seen anything else like this in your lifetime? Does this remind you of anything? Uh, many, many. <laughs> all the protests against all the wars, the Vietnam War in particular, you know, Rodney King and Martin Luther King. I mean, it just goes on and on. And uh, so, yes, it reminds me of a lot of things. It's very familiar. This feels very familiar. Is there anything different about now, though? The cars? Yeah. I feel like more people are here today. More white people are here today. And I think that's fantastic. Not a lot of white people always turn out for um, police brutality against black people or people of color. I would say staying back is, well, it didn't happen to me. It's not really my problem. I'm not a racist. I hear that a lot. I'm not a racist. Um, it's too much trouble. Maybe something's going to happen. Something, some violence is going to happen. You know, I'll send money to something other than show up. And also, I think right now, it seems like a turning point that more people are more aware of their inner racism and willing to look at it. Imagine being stuck in the world's largest traffic jam, but not being irritated. Instead, imagine being inspired and motivated and bonded with the community around you instead of trying to cut them off. That's what this car caravan felt like. The car started creeping forward. The caravan was on the move. The Anti-Police Terror Project live-streamed the protest directly on Facebook and had a Zoom link with ASL interpretation. They also directed people to tune in to 88.1 FM. In between some feel-good songs and radio interference, Ken and the other organizers gave directions, reminded everyone to keep taking the pandemic seriously, and reinforce why the protest is necessary. I rolled down my window and could hear it. Inside our own cars, our own spaces, we were all listening to the same thing at the same time. 
I mean, there is something to be said about standing shoulder to shoulder with your comrades in the streets. Like that has a particular energy and feel. But this too, like knowing that we were all in this together on the radio and play music for people, we had a whole soundtrack going. and It, it, was, it was dope. And I think people actually really enjoy the car caravans. Upwards of 10,000 cars wound through Oakland. The caravan was miles long. One friend who participated and who is extremely concerned about the virus spreading posted a photo on social media from the driver's seat of his truck. The warm, hazy glow of the sun in front of him was beautiful. Stay safe and social distance, he wrote. Justice for George Floyd. Black Lives Matter. We are living in incredibly powerful times and dangerous times, right? So this isn't an ordinary moment in the movement. I mean, movements ebb and flow. I hear people say this is the beginning. It's not the beginning. This is a continuation of a lot of work. So we've got to be in the streets. We've got to keep this going. I don't want to get sick. And I certainly don't want to be responsible for other people getting sick. And I think at this time, particularly as organizers and people that if you're going to choose to go on the streets, you need to arm yourself with that knowledge that you can better protect yourselves, your families and your communities. So please take care of yourself, please. And know the facts about COVID-19. Sonia Paul, a freelance journalist and audio producer based in Oakland, California. Matt Allen is a songwriter and rapper that lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. Early in the pandemic, he was social distancing, staying at home, and writing an album about being stuck there. So I'm going to talk about some chips. I'm a big fan. I've been a bit of fan, long-time eater, a first-time caller. I don't really know what else to do. I'm by myself here, so. Sour cream and onions, pretty cool. Also, I'd be liking barbecue. Salt and vinegar is pretty tight. Cheddar chips, I'll rock with any night. I love some Doritos, though I'm not really sure if they have a taste that's found in nature. But three nights after George Floyd's murder, Matt and his fiance found themselves in downtown Minneapolis. They were trying to bring supplies to friends who were protesting. They drove straight into the heart of the action toward the third police precinct that you probably saw burning on the news. Uh, it's it's pretty much pandemonium. I, I remember I remember clearly walking towards my friend in his car in the parking lot and seeing fireworks being shot over just a parking lot full of broken glass, kind of overall anarchy. And lighting it up is the fires across the street. It was like Mad Max. Like it was, people were just driving around. There were like the targets on fire. And you still hear the the crack of the gas and, and the rubber bullets being shot and people screaming and shouting. Matt and his fiance struggled to find their friends, not knowing that they'd already turned back for home. A woman called out asking if they were the medic team. Matt was stunned. He didn't have any prior medical training. She leads us over to this pile of first aid water saline solution stuff. 
and that had been abandoned in the Target parking lot. And she said, there were medics here at one point, but when the fire started, they just all left. And I was like, okay, I don't feel right about leaving all of these peaceful protesters and people in general here without any sort of aid. People were bleeding and their friends were carrying them out on reappropriated target dolly carts to try to get them far enough away from the chaos to find a way to get into a car and get to the hospital. It was insane, but I was like, okay, well, we have all this aid stuff. Let's just do it. And then we started just doing our best to help people with first aid. We were, we'd scream out first aid, first aid, we had water. And we would just be with our cell phones, lighting up these people's uh, things so we could put hydrogen peroxide on it, put band-aids on it, wrap it um, if it needed wrapping. One woman with a massive leg wound came up, but it was beyond what the makeshift crew could handle. An ambulance between two police cars drove by, saw them, and kept driving. And I'll never forget that moment of just like my, my, it, my heart sunk into my stomach. Because I was like, I none of us can help her. This black, this young black girl is going to bleed out if we don't get them to turn back around. And we started shouting, like we started shouting at it at the back of this ambulance as it pulled away from us. Like, what are you doing? How can you leave us here? We need you to take this girl. Like we were shouting. And then, uh, like, almost a block away, it stopped. It reversed back. The ambulance driver rolled down his window a crack, like you would do if it was pouring rain, which it wasn't, and asked what they needed. Eventually, Matt convinced him to take the bleeding woman into the back of the ambulance, and it drove away. The two squad cars stuck around. The cops kind of linger on us for a minute, and I remember... In the moment as they were driving away, finally had taken this girl who had been injured. A couple of random white teenagers come out of the darkness and start throwing rocks at the cops. And I was just like, nobody is understanding anybody right now. Like, nobody is listening. Matt and his team stayed out till about 2 a.m. that day, until they ran out of supplies and couldn't help anymore. And so that was day one. (laughs) I went home and I laid down in my bed, which was a huge blessing for me to be able to do. And then the next day I woke up and I was like, that's still out there. Like, that is still out there. That situation has not changed. I need to do something. I don't have a lot of, I have nothing other than basic understanding of how band-aids and wounds work. But like, we need to be out there for these people. Somebody has to be. So they bought a tent and a bunch of fresh supplies and went back to the parking lot. And that day, that Wednesday, all the way from, I think I got there at 10, 30, 11 o'clock, all the way till about 1 a.m. when we left. We were just there patching people up, breaking up fights, treating the injured, giving out water, giving out like carts of food 
that people would bring to us because they had nowhere else to go with it. And during all of this, there is still a pandemic happening. COVID's not finished. So it was obviously like everybody needs a mask. We need to be changing our gloves regularly. We have a bunch of hand sanitizer. There's only so much you can do. And so we were like, take a mask. If you're going to be protesting, have a mask. Like we have hand sanitizer. Clean, like, clean off your hands. We tried our best to social distance. But like real talk, when someone gets rushed in and a rubber bullet has busted their teeth and they're trying to not choke on their own teeth. Yeah, it's a little hard to stay back six feet and also help that person. Matt named his team the Justice Frontline Aid Crew. And 17 days later, they are still out on the street in Minneapolis, a group of untrained citizens providing protesters basic medical care during a pandemic. Well, that group of untrained citizens and Amanda. I don't know where this woman came from. Her name is Amanda. I didn't invite her, but she was a combat medic in Iraq for two years. When I tell you that that woman saved at least three people's life on Wednesday night, I am not exaggerating. Like, she was a godsend. I don't know. I I, I have no idea where she came from. <laughs> but, so she just took over, basically, the medic, like the medicine portion, the medic stuff. And so uh, as soon as she came in, she just, like she knew what to do and where to go and how to help. And have you ever seen, like, stuff like that before? Like someone trying not to choke on their own teeth? I have been unfortunate enough to see some violence in my life before this. But up until that point, I had never seen a young girl hit full force in the head with a ice scraper like you would for your car like in the back of the head just knocking her straight down to the ground and then having to hold her there while we get people to try and help i've never seen chemical weapons sprayed at people women children babies and strollers as we continue talking telling these stories i think it's really important that we make a distinction between people who are the, the people who are protesting and those who aren't there are two separate groups that are occupying the same space it's like oil and water i think people need to remind themselves that peaceful protesters are being hurt out there and they aren't doing anything wrong and while that is hard to swallow it's the truth of what's going on there is a there was a girl by the name of Grace. She got shot point blank in the face for the crime of being out past curfew. She wasn't destroying anything. She wasn't looting anything. She was just a brown girl who was out when they said not to be out. And that and my one of my nurses, one of the amazing people on my team, in the in a dirty basement by cell phone light, while hiding from the police, saved that girl's eye with just what she had on hand. And that's the reality of what's happening on the ground. And so when you see these people so angry for justice and wanting to defund the police and XYZ, and you can't think of any other police officers than the kindly ones you know, just a reminder that that's also happening at the same time. When you're seeing that stuff, like, is is the 
virus in the back of your mind? Or are you just like super focused on what's happening and, and the virus kind of goes away? I mean, obviously self-preservation like is your first immediate thing. Like when you hear like actual gunfire, not rubber bullet gunfire, but like bullet bullets, your first thought process is get out. You know, like I don't, I don't care if my mask isn't on. I just need to get out of here. When I watch all these people coughing and spitting on the ground, you know, rubbing their face and eyes and holding on to each other, coughing onto each other. And I thought to myself, if there was ever a worse time to use a chemical weapon that specifically causes people to choke and cough and be have it hard to breathe, tear gas isn't necessarily lethal. But who knows how many people in that crowd were either asymptomatic or were having trouble breathing and didn't know, didn't have access to a testing facility and didn't know why they were having a, such a tough time breathing or just had asthma or any other thing. Tell me about weighing the risk of going out then. Because, I mean, there's the, there's the risk, of, obviously, of violence being done to you, which happened, right? Like you guys, the, your medic team was attacked by cops. You guys got arrested at one point. Like, there's that, like, really messed up standard protest violence and racist violence. But, but then there's this extra level of virus risk. So tell me about weighing that against just staying home. My thought process was, well, Matt, this isn't going to be the last time a police officer kills one of us unnecessarily. This isn't even the first time. I had to fight past my own numbness because in my head, my first thought was like a lot of people in the same place at the same time. Is this the thing that I go outside for and literally just step into the virus essentially. And I said to myself, at least they're looking for a cure for COVID. At least someone out there is trying to find a vaccine for this. But if I don't go out into the street and protest, who's going to look for a cure for racism in my city? I, I could not allow my voice not to be heard because it was more likely that I would die at a traffic stop than I would die from the coronavirus because of the color of my skin. And that's including how the coronavirus disproportionately attacks black and brown communities. So I said to myself, you know what? It's the, it, it, at least the coronavirus doesn't, doesn't care that I'm black. So our show is about helpers. And I have this theory that's like, Okay, maybe it's a little twisted, but it's about the pandemic actually, like, being a certain kind of help in this moment. So, um, my theory is <laughs> that the pandemic, like, shook status quo white people out of a sense of normalcy. Like, it, it was the thing that was able to do that. And now they can 
understand how the world can change really quickly. And they're more able to empathize with the idea that the world can be a terrifying place to be in. And they have like even more possibilities for what the world can look like in their minds now than they did six months ago. And and I don't know, is like, is it way too strong to think that the pandemic, while absolutely horrible, never a good thing to go through, but actually like carving a space to help the movement in some way? I think you are 100% correct. I think it's unfortunate that it took a global pandemic uh, to open some people's eyes. I'll take it even one step further. I think our Western-style capitalism has been designed in such a way that people have just enough time to care about things that are easy to care about. Because you have to worry about your job, not only having one, but doing it well, then you have to make sure you have the energy to do your job. And then you have the energy to maintain yourself, both like just basic necessities, and then make sure you have a place to live, a car to drive, and a phone to communicate. All of those things are continuing. So our system is designed for you to have maybe two to three extra things that you care about that don't immediately affect you and are easy to care about. When the pandemic hit, it shattered that design because now all people have is time. It was only a matter of time before something like this would happen. So now here is America with a surplus of emotional energy and a violent murder right in front of their eyes. It triggered the, I think, the instinctual response to do something. And because the pandemic had wiped out social structure in any capacity, there was nothing to distract them from their feelings. No sports, no music, no theater, no restaurants, nothing. You couldn't escape this if you wanted to. The coronavirus, as horrible and destructive and just ghastly, as it was, and is. It carved out every single distraction from, I think, the more insidious sickness of racism in our country. It cleared the brush away, which is bad. The deforestation to find out that, you know what, the ground that this was set on is actually filled with bodies. And I feel like a lot of people are dealing with guilt that it was a uh, pandemic that made them have that sort of time to care. And I feel like that's something that we're going to have to talk about as a nation as we go forward. But so, yeah, when you said that, I was like, yeah, no, that's correct. But, but I think that by design, we didn't have the emotional time to care. What do you think though, about the future? Like you've said a couple of times, like going forward, um, we'll have to think about how this plays out. So so Minneapolis, right, is in talks, in talks about defunding the police. Um, does that feel like a victory? And if so, like, how, how do you want people to keep the victory going? I think there is a victory in there that the people, as long as they can stay engaged, um, there is a victory there. 
that being that being said, as we move forward, um, and and what I would want people to remember is that the window of us having the coronavirus to keep people from being distracted is closing. The movement's relationship to the coronavirus is um, right now is is really kind of symbiotic. We're gonna see an increase in cases of COVID. It's just what's going to happen. So just by sheer amount of people being out there, it's going to affect people. And the social implications of that is that there is going to be a narrative put that the Black Lives Matter, Black and Brown community got everybody sick. And I think that they have to be emotionally ready for that accusation. Because it will come. Because in a sense, it is very true. Is that we decided to go out into the streets and we exposed ourselves to the coronavirus. And many of us might have got it. And we might be spreading it to continue to do this justice. That's something we have to think about um, as we go forward. And you can't arrest the coronavirus. Like, you can't. Like, you can't arrest the coronavirus. When we got arrested, they put us 13 to a cell. There was no social distancing. Like, no amount of check written to the Minneapolis Police Department is going to keep from anybody from getting sick. So maybe that's something we should be focusing our, our finances on in the future as things continue to unfold with what had to happen in order to potentially save the lives of black and brown people in the city. So what can people do to help you and your team right now? Mm. Well, uh, I know what Deshan, my partner in crime, she's done a lot of protest stuff before. I know what she'll definitely want me to say is that financial donations are always, always helpful. And they are, honestly. There's some things that we can't wait for someone to donate. Like there are certain things that communities need when they need them. And so the ability to purchase those things are, is super helpful. So um, we have a PayPal that's justicefrontlineaidcrew at Gmail. If people uh, feel so inclined to give via PayPal, that would be so helpful. And my team, I've told everybody who's asked, what can we do? I said, my team, we're not protesters per se. Like we have people that go to protests. We have people that agree with protesters, but our job isn't to protest. Our job is to make sure that those people who are exercising their right to protest are safe. So whatever they're protesting about, the sooner that gets resolved, the sooner we can go home. So the best thing you can do to help our team is to help the situations that these protesters are fighting for. And right now, it is the equal treatment in all areas of black and brown people in Minnesota and of the world, really. Uh, But since the world is a pretty big bite to swallow, Minneapolis and Minnesota is where we're, we've decided to start. And hopefully we can continue that movement on from here. Do you plan on continuing to be a, a medic? Oof. <laughs> I, I, I ask that to myself every time I wake up. People come through like, hey, there's going to be a, a rally here. There's going to be a demonstration here. And I'm always like, I used to be a rapper. <laughs> 
I used to be a geek rapper. I would rap about Harry Potter and Captain America and the Justice League. Like, like I was not even like one of the rappers that were hard in your face with really like progressive social reform. And now here I am dodging bullets and patching up bloody protesters on, on the, on the, in the parking lot of Target. You know, and I asked myself, how long am I going to do that? Uh, and the answer is, I guess, until I'm no longer needed. I, I, because I'm a geek rapper, because I am a person who was uh, different my whole life, I've always identified with characters in fiction that were different their whole lives. And even though it's not technically scripture, one of the first bits of scripture I ever heard was an amazing fantasy. <laughs> Uncle Ben telling Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. And while I have the power to do something, I have a responsibility to do that. Matt Allen raps under the name Nerdy. You can check out his music at nerdyrocks.com. That's N U R, the letter D rocks buy all his music through Bandcamp. he has this whole amazing album about being stuck in his room during covid including this song six feet six feet away homie five feet 12 inches away from me keep your distance what the heck are you not getting take yourself right to the bathroom watch your hands for 20 seconds and then six feet six feet away homie in addition to staying six feet away here are some ways to keep as safe as possible during a protest in a pandemic. Wear a mask. Use a lot of hand sanitizer and don't touch your face. If it is possible, stay six feet away from people. For the 14 days after you go to the protest, act as if you have COVID-19. Wash your hands all the time. Self-quarantine as much as possible. Don't see any immunocompromised people. Wait until five to seven days after your last protest, then go get tested. Self-isolate until you receive a negative test result. If you do regular protests, make it a habit to get tested every one to two weeks. And that's our show. Social Distance Assistance is produced and engineered by June Hardcastle Robinson Jones, Kelly Jones, and Molly Bourne. It was created and edited by Nate Toby. Gavin Wright makes it all happen. Digital assistance from Angela Messino and the VPM News Team. Steve Humble is VPM's Chief Content Officer. Music for this week's episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you heard, help us out. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Special thanks to Curtis Gilbert from American Public Media for connecting us with Matt Allen. You should check out Curtis's reporting on police shootings in collaboration with the podcast Reveal. Look for the episode called What Cops Aren't Learning. Members are a fundamental part of VPM. Member support is especially vital right now. Through member support, we're able to provide timely and fact-based information, educational resources for our kids, and informative and entertaining content to keep minds active and engaged. Be a part of what makes VPM possible. Visit vpm.org slash donate to become a member today.
VPM.